not the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, I am uh, in the 5 o'clock hour. <laughs> you know that, though. You know what time it is. I always bristle when I hear radio show hosts talk about what time it is. Every, does, every, why do we need to tell people what time it is? I'm in hour three of this radio show, and I'm broadcasting today from the Oregon Convention Center, and Worlds of Sport is happening this weekend. Worldsofsport.com if you want tickets. There's a promo code I can give you, PDX. 22 that'll get you some discount kids uh under four i think no it's under 10 i think kids under 10 are free or heavily discounted go onto the website and check that out i'm losing my marbles here but john strong the voice of american soccer is coming up um we've had a really good week of radio i got a column coming for sunday i want you to know about on sunday i'll be writing about fathers and the pac-12 conference uh prominent people who are in the Pac-12 conference. What I mean by that is uh, athletic directors and coaches and, uh, of course, uh, conference commissioner George Klyovkov. I asked all of the uh, coaches and ADs to give me a story. Give me a story about your dad. Tell me a story. Tell me uh, a story that, you know, maybe uh, is quirky or funny or different about your father. And I got tremendous responses from the Pac-12 members who reached out and said, well, let me tell you about my dad. And then they went into a story that was fantastic. But I think it really helps explain who some of these uh, personalities are. And I think it helps explain kind of why they're successful. Uh, I think it's a fascinating study. If you are a parent, I think you should read it. If you want to be entertained and you want to learn something about Dan Lanning or you want to learn something about, uh, you know, Commissioner Klyovkov, the Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyovkov, or you want to learn something about, um, you know, the uh, the uh, basketball coach at uh, at Oregon or whatnot. Uh, I've got it for you on Sunday at johnconzano.com. So check that out. I think it's going to be, it's really fun for me to write it and report it. I think it'll it'll be a fun read. Uh, our next guest joining us uh, live via satellite from New York City, John Strong. He's made it, folks. The voice of American soccer on Fox Sports is also the dog guy. And he's joining us from New York. Where are you in New York? Are you in Manhattan? No, technically I'm in White Plains. So I don't know if that means I've actually made it or not. Okay, you kind of made it. I'm close. You're close close. to making it. (laughs) Yeah. Give give me an idea. Um, Before I get into soccer and all the important stuff, let's talk about this dog gig you got. What are you doing with the dog show? So a couple of years ago, 2019, ironically, it was immediately after being on your show. I forget what we were talking about, but I remember being on, and I popped my head into the office of one of my bosses at Fox. And she's like, uh, what do you know about dogs? I'm like, I have two lovable but poorly behaved golden retrievers. Why? <laughs> and she said, "We, you know, do you want to do the Westminster Dog Show? We need someone to do sort of like the B-team show. Uh, is essentially what it is. And I'm like, absolutely. And it, this is the third time I've done it. It's the most fun thing ever. I, I host and call 
We tape it tomorrow. It airs Sunday morning at 9.30 Pacific on uh, on Fox, like Channel 12 Fox. It's the Agility Championship. So it's like the obstacle course. Okay. So you get, like, Border Collies. You get little tiny dogs. You get great big Labradors running this obstacle course. And I get to do that, which is crazy fun. And then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday morning Pacific time, I'm on for three hours each day. Uh, on FS2, and what that is, like when you watch the evening show, when you think about the Westminster Dog Show, or you think about the movie Best in Show, which is actually very accurate, it's just, it's, they, I think the dog show people take it as a kind of mean to them, but it's very true. And when they, you know, the the Weimariner has been bred since 1879 and was part of English aristocracy. Well, earlier that day, there were like 30 Weimariners. And and so I host the show where they're sort of picking the best of each breed of dog who then goes to the show in the evening. And it's super fun, and we laugh the whole time, and it's a wonderful mental palate cleanser from just how darn serious we take sports and how darn serious it is sometimes to work in sports. And it's this wonderful, just happy, joyful couple of days uh, to get to do it. So I, I love that I'm back here again. I love the attitude that you have about it. You, This is good. You bring in joy to the dog world and you're doing uh, you're doing something fun that's great uh it, it's a lot of fun it's great to show a little versatility to my bosses yeah and, uh, and like i said it, it's a nice just little mental uh shift from from all the other stuff so no, it, it's great you got a pit bull in this dog show uh I, well so i'm i have two golden retrievers and here's the thing the golden retriever every single year has the most entries of any breed. There are, I think, 49 this year. I was looking at my notes. The Golden Retriever has never once won the Westminster Best in Show. Really? The dog show that dates to the 1870s. This is the 140-something edition of the Westminster Dog Show. Golden Retriever's never won it. Only three times has the Golden Retriever even been up for Best in Show, like won their group. The last was a couple of years ago. So I'm very much, that's a big thing to me. Like, it's very un-American elitist that the most popular dog breeds tend to be the ones that don't actually succeed in this thing. So I, I definitely make a big stink each year when the Golden Retrievers are on to my dog show analysts of, like, why does the Golden not get a chance? So I'm, I'm all in for that one. Alabama Adriana popped by the show a little bit earlier. She has a pit bull. She called it a pity. Uh, she, <laughs> she said when she's hiking with the dog, other people will cross the trail. Like, they don't want to get close oh, to yeah. her. Oh, sure. Do they allow a pity in this show? That's a. I don't know that a pit bull is technically in. In that, that's actually a great question. I might have to look that up. Look uh, that are the up. Pit bulls even in it. I have a feeling. It's, I mean, it's an interesting thing that you know, because because one of the things that's different, the agility, like the obstacle course, they have what they call all American dogs, which is like mixed breeds. Because the point of the other show is these are like purebred you know, lineage, you know, breed confirmation type things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a, I'm going to look that up and double-check that one. I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I got to ask you about the World Cup. Uh, what was your reaction when you saw the World Cup and then specifically Seattle getting some games? Yeah, you're welcome for the tweet you pushed out a couple hours ago. I basically yeah. authored that for you in a text message yeah. yesterday. Uh, no, yeah. listen, this is it's, – it's a very subtle thing I get. If you're not a big soccer person, you're sort of like, oh, whatever – when the World Cup, the Men's World Cup comes to the U.S. in four years, if people remember back to 94, soccer didn't exist in 1994. NASL had been dead for 10 years. Soccer was not a thing in America in 1994. And that World Cup was the most successful in the history of the World Cup. Higher attendances than any before. It was a huge deal. 
you think about how popular soccer's become now, and honestly, our bosses at Fox, I mean, we've done 25 years now worth of World Series, Super Bowls, Daytona 500. They all say this is going to be the biggest production in the history of Fox Sports by a mile because you're talking about a month-long tournament spread across the entire U.S. The ratings for this will be through the roof. It's going to be an incredible thing. And so what they did yesterday was they announced what cities are going to be hosting games. And, and the, the text I sent to you, and I, I, it's a subtle thing, but I think it's really interesting, is part of Paul Allen's legacy. You know, And we remember back 20-plus years ago when there was a thought to move the Seahawks out of Seattle to Southern California, and he came in, he bought the team. You know, It was a very narrow vote. Uh, with with you know this public private partnership that barely passed allowed them to build the stadium. The story that I was told, and I I did, couldn't find this anywhere publicly, but the story that I was told once that the original plans for the architectural design of what we now call Lumen Field, that Paul Allen himself was like, we have to change these plans because a lot of football state you know a soccer field is a lot wider. So a lot of football stadiums aren't wide enough to host a soccer field. That's a big part of why Las Vegas is not hosting games at this World Cup. SoFi Stadium in L.A. just hosted the Super Bowl. They're going to have to pay millions of dollars to basically reconstruct the bottom of the stadium to make it wide enough to hold a soccer field. And the fact that Paul Allen had the foresight 20-plus years ago when soccer was nothing in Seattle as compared to what it is now. This is way before the Sounders came to MLS and all this other stuff to say, let's make sure that we're at least in a position if the World Cup comes back or other big soccer, we can be a part. And I tell you what, you know, the, the global spotlight that the city of Seattle and the Pacific Northwest is going to get by hosting games at a World Cup is beyond, you know, the Seahawks could win the Super Bowl again. It would not have the same level of global attention as what this is going to be. So I, it's a really neat, just a small, subtle, added part to what I think Paul Allen's legacy is for, for sports in the Pacific Northwest. Vancouver gets some games, Seattle gets some games, SoFi Stadium in L.A. gets some games, Portland does not get games. Is that solely because of the size of the venue, or do we get host because Seattle and the others are getting it and you just can't do that on the West Coast? No, it is purely down to we don't have a big enough stadium here. I mean, it's, it's I think, officially 45,000 capacity is the minimum. Really, we're talking about NFL-sized stadiums, and and. As an example, Autzen Stadium, big enough theoretically, but it's too narrow. You can't put a regulation soccer field. And I don't think, you know, Eugene wouldn't really fit because you're talking about big cities. But, you know, it's interesting. To, to one of your points, Washington, D.C. did not get any games. This is the first time since the 1970s that a, a country's capital city is not hosting games at a World Cup. Now, the real reason is because Washington, D.C. does not have a stadium. RFK has been condemned. FedEx Field in Landover, Maryland, where the Guardians play, is a disaster, and the bid just sort of fell apart. There was a suggestion that Washington, D.C., kind of like Portland with the, the women's basketball tournament a couple years ago, did it suffer from poor optics in January 6th and all this stuff. It really was just a matter of stadium. That's largely what this stuff comes down to. Do you have a big, giant stadium? Can we make a ton of money? And are you willing to, you know, bend over backwards? I mean, Chicago's not a part because the Chicago city government was like, we're not going to give you all these tax breaks and pay you all this money to have this stuff. But a lot of cool cities got it. Kansas City, which, you know, for a long time we would not have thought of as a soccer hotbed. You know, you were in Atlanta a couple years ago at MLS Cup, 70,000 people in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They're going to be hosting games. The one interesting thing to watch 
is two NFL owners. Number one, Robert Kraft. There was a question whether Foxborough was going to get games. Robert Kraft basically leveraged his relationships to make that happen. The other is Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones, not just that they're going to host games in Dallas at Jerry World AT&T Stadium, he's making a big play to host the final of the World Cup. And as I understand it, there's actually a lot of traction that Jerry Jones has put a lot of effort and energy into building relationships with people at FIFA that his stadium in Dallas and not SoFi in L.A. and not MetLife here in New York would host the final of the World Cup. And it is an interesting thing that some of these big-time NFL owners have, have really pivoted where they're putting their energy and attention right now and have put a lot of themselves into being a big part of what this World Cup is going to be in four years. John Strong with us, the voice of American soccer on Fox Sports, also the voice of, what do we call the dog show, the Westminster Dog Show? The Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show, yeah. That thing. <laughs> uh, Strong joining us. Uh, give me an idea. Um, when we talk World Cup, we, we start talking about, hey, it's exciting. People can go see some games here. What about our teams? Uh, what, what, do we have a dog in this fight legitimately? So I've been saying for a couple of years now, the U.S. men are going to win the World Cup in 2026 on home soil. And it sounds very hot takey. I don't actually think it is. And, and here's, here's what I mean by that. Historically, host nations overperform at the World Cup. In 94, the U.S. pulled off a huge upset of Colombia. They, they, they narrowly lost to Brazil, who ended up winning the World Cup. Any, you know, Russia, who coming into the last World Cup, even the Russians did not like their team. They made it all the way to a quarterfinal. You're talking about a team right now, this U.S. team is going to be the youngest at this fall's World Cup, and not like by a couple of months. They're going to be younger than any other roster by at least a year. And you're talking about a team that's very talented, they're very young, and in four years they're all going to be in their prime. They're going to be playing on home soil. I think everything aligns, I really do, for the U.S. to make a run. I think if they do that, and I've heard people at Fox Sports sort of quietly speculate could a World Cup final with the U.S. in it have more viewers than any Super Bowl? And I think that's a possibility in four years' time because of you know a month's worth of buildup and excitement. But I think the team that's going to the World Cup in Qatar in November is, is young. They're hungry. They're there for the first time. I think they'll have success and get out of the group. Remember, we're talking about they're going to play England on Black Friday on the Fox Network. And there's a, there's a, the question is going to be, will that break the record for most watched soccer game in American history. The present record is 25 million who watched the Women's World Cup final in 2015. We could break that record Black Friday. I think this team's going to have success and get experience, but in four years from now, when they're all in their prime, that absolutely could be something special. John Strong with us, uh, the voice of American soccer. Strong, let me, let me pivot a little bit. You know, I, I haven't talked to you since we saw the ruling or I guess the decision where the women on the world or the national team suddenly were going to get an increase in pay, what did you make of all of that? And and uh, is that now put to rest? Potentially, probably, likely, yes. The, the The crux of this largely was there were some issues where it was silly stuff. It was like, you know, the women's players got fifteen dollars fewer per day than the men for per diem, or like the men's team they'd book them in first class and the women were being booked in coach and just stupid stuff like that where it's like, just fix that. That's just silly. The, the larger issue was the fact that FIFA on a global scale 
the basically the last place finisher at a men's World Cup gets more money from FIFA than the winning team at the Women's World Cup. And, and you are talking about large-scale, very sexist attitudes historically and presently towards women in soccer. And, and it, it's a very big-picture conversation that goes into that. But that was the point, is it's a huge disparity in the amount of money the women's players could get for winning the World Cup as compared to the men's players just for showing up and qualifying. And so that was a lot of it was agreeing to this deal where they would share – this big pot of money. And what it creates is the better the men do, the better the women do, the more money all the players make. And, and the hope is that this can be a deal that actually is a trendsetter globally for women's and men's sports. Now, there's another argument to this, and there was, a, I forget who it was at the top of my head, but there was a Portland Thorns player just the other day had in, in the Portland Tribune an op-ed about this, which I think is a great point, where she was basically saying, why are we benchmarking our success just for equality with men? Why don't we try to actually just push that even higher? Why, why are we settling for just, just give us what the men make? And, and it's a very great point, but I think in the short term, to be able to equalize this out, um, to be able to not have these sort of ridiculous, unnecessary disparities, I think was a very good deal to be made. And it does create a fun situation where, the better the men's team does in Qatar, the more money the women stand to make, and the better the women's team does next year in Australia New Zealand at the Women's World Cup, the more money the men make. And it creates just a fun situation where the two teams are rooting for each other because they each have sort of skin in the game, so to speak. Yeah, I'm fascinated by it. And I think, you know, I think, too, that, you know, I, I, I know that in our market people are more tuned into it because of the success of the Thorns. Um, it was interesting. I had a former player from Real Salt Lake who was on the show earlier. And, yeah, this has turned into a soccer show, Strong. Yeah, you'd be proud <laughs> gotcha. of it. So, so he was talking about it being scary to come to Portland and play because of the crowd. And I don't think I, – like, I, I think we all think of it as festive and exciting, whatever. I don't think we think of it through the prism of a visiting player coming in in this environment. Great for soccer, but still – a great home field advantage in the game. Has the league recreated anything like Portland anywhere else? You know, it's an interesting point because I would argue that I've seen plenty of examples of, of the opposite, that players, particularly when you're talking about, you know, when the Timbers were in USL, when they were in the minor leagues before MLS and the Thorns now, when there's a huge gap between you might see three times as many fans in Portland as in any other city in the league. I found plenty of examples of where it was almost a reverse home field advantage because the away team was so jacked up. They were so fired up to actually play in front of a real crowd that they sort of played better. They, they fed off that atmosphere in a more positive way. So it's an interesting thing, that notion of it was difficult as a visiting player, because I would argue that there's plenty of examples of that being the opposite. As far as the Thorns go, I think it's a fair point, and it's something that really fascinates me because you look at Seattle, right? And Seattle's this great soccer town, and they average 35,000 fans a game for the men's team. They've never really supported the women's team. The women's team up there has struggled for attendance. They've bounced around different stadiums. They played in Tacoma for a couple of years. They're back in Seattle. We as a city in Portland have never had seemingly as much of an issue, whether it's women or men. If, if you're a Portland athlete, we go support you. Other cities, other countries seem to have a big hang-up on going and watching women play the same sport. And it's something that gives me a great amount of pride in Portland that we've all, whether it's University of Portland, whether it's the Thorns, whether it was the Portland Power 
in the ABL days or the Portland Fire and WNBA, if, if you're a Portland athlete, we support you. And there are even up the road in Seattle all these soccer fans who go to the men's games, but they don't go to the women's games. And, and it's something, as I said, that I think is really cool and gives me a lot of pride about the city of Portland is how the Thorns are supported, what the atmosphere is like. You know, I, there was another big story the other day about this all-women's sports bar in Portland and just, just yeah. little things like that where it's really cool to live in a city that does stuff like that. And I feel like just supports the way that we should. Why, why should it matter that it's men's sports or women's sports? If it's good sports and it's our team, we should root for them, no problem. Do you think that would translate to the WNBA, that, that sort of support for women's sports in Portland? I don't know how it wouldn't. I mean, again, when, when they launched women's professional basketball in the early 90s, the Portland Power were getting great crowds at Memorial Coliseum. It's just no one else, the, the league itself sort of folded. I would absolutely, I mean, for goodness sakes, look at how we supported the Portland Lumberjacks, the indoor lacrosse team. The, the Jack Portland Attack. Forest Dragons. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's and again, I'm, I'm not trying because it's, it's very, very good women's basketball, but just this is a city that, is an incredible sports town in a different way than it's given credit for sometimes that we support our team. So no, I'm, I'm hugely behind the WNBA team, obviously to have someone like Sabrina Ionescu, it's great to have, see her really sort of come into her own, even the last couple of weeks to have her as the face of the team, I think would be the coolest thing ever, but I think it would do phenomenally well. And I think, you know, it, to me it would seem like such a no brainer. You've got an incredible stadium. You've got an incredible fan base. If it was just a matter of needing someone to pay for it, that they've there was never a viable owner option in the last 15 years, I guess. But but that is would be such a, an awesome thing, I think, to have, and I think it would do sensationally well. I think it would add to this notion of Portland really being a world leader in supporting women's sports. When you see with the Thorns and with UP soccer historically, to add the WABA into that, uh, I think would just be fantastic. John Strong, you can you can catch him. The wet. Give me the show again. The Westminster Kennel <laughs> Club West, Dog Westminster Show. Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. Uh, it'll be Sunday, nine thirty in the morning. It's an early start, but it's the Agility Championship. It's on Fox Twelve. Tune in to watch. It's the most fun thing you've ever seen. If you've never seen oh, it, I've before. seen it. Oh, I've seen it. The kids love it. I mean, we just put yeah. it on. We put it on because the kids like it. You know, that's yeah, that's yeah. it. That, that's I, I don't. We, you can mute. We still get the ratings. No, no. We keep the we, we keep the sound up. We keep the sound up. We go. We know that guy. So we do yeah, that. No. All right. It's, hey, it's fun. Happy early Father's Day, my friend. You too, my friend. Uh, you take care of yourself. It's great to hear your voice. See you, bud. John Strong, voice of American soccer, and the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. Leave it here. <laughs> Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. All right, I got a bit of a uh, bit of a uh, dilemma here for our listeners, and maybe even for you, Judah Newby. You ready for this? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so it was a couple few weeks ago that we uh, we took a trip to uh, Yosemite. Remember that? Yes. Maybe two weeks so. Yeah, two you, you kind of fit it in on a weekend, didn't you? Yeah, we just jammed it in yeah. real quick. Trip. We, we were visiting. Um, we were visiting my nephew. It was his graduation, and they they live about you know an hour and a half really from Yosemite. So uh, we were able to uh, go take a quick trip over to Yosemite, and we uh, we didn't do like 
detailed Yosemite, but we uh, we uh, did a little bit of Yosemite, and what we got was um, we got to see like you know El Capitan and the Valley Floor and some of the other uh, areas there in Yosemite. But what we uh, what we did not get to do was go on like extensive hikes but we did see the upper falls lower falls whatever it was um i found something in yosemite and i am trying to get it back to its owner we were on a trail in yosemite and i came upon a gopro camera that was sitting on a rock and i thought oh my gosh somebody's gonna be missing this gopro i have a gopro that is Oh, I think it's identical to the one I found. So I recognized immediately I had bought I had bought a GoPro to shoot my stadium walk-up videos that I've been posting on Instagram. And so I recognized immediately that this, this GoPro is, you know, it's expensive. Like somebody lost a GoPro on a trail in Yosemite. So I was, I had a conflict. Do I leave it where it was and just hope that the person you know, comes back and retrieves it? Or do I pick it up and do I try to get it back to its rightful owner? What would you have done? I would have left it. People are about 50-50 on do you pick it up and try to find its home or do you leave it? I was conflicted because I thought it's like it's a two or three hour trip to get to that trail. And I thought, there's no way in hell that person's coming back for it. So that, if you're ruling that out, then yeah, I guess you pick it up. I picked it up because I thought, you know, I'll just take it down and I'll leave it at the nearest ranger station, put it in their lost and found. Maybe the person will come back for it. So we, we hiked down the trail, and I go to the ranger station, and it's closed. It was after 5 p.m. They're gone. So now I had a dilemma. Do I leave it at the ranger station, just set it like nearby and go, hey, somebody lost this? So I turned the camera on and I looked at the photos that were on it. And it looks to be like uh, a group of millennials. Okay. <laughs> you looked at it. Yeah. I looked at their photos and their videos. Okay. And it was brand new. It was just used on that trip. And it looks like they were in Key West, Florida, riding jet skis. <laughs> okay. And so I said, gosh. What if I tweet out some of these photos and go, hey, does anybody know these people? I have your GoPro. Do you think we could crowdsource and find the owner of the GoPro by Monday? If I did, if I tweet out those photos, let's say I do it um, tomorrow. Yeah. Or let, or maybe I should wait till Monday because I want high traffic. Maybe I should wait till Monday and tweet it out Monday. But do you think we could – what's the power of social media? Do you think we could find the owner of the GoPro? Yeah, absolutely. But you need to provide context on a thread. So you, you post the photos with whatever caption and then – I have your GoPro. Yeah, th thread some... it to make sure you they know that you're not a creeper because yeah. otherwise it comes across a little odd. But 100% this will work. I have your GoPro. I found it on a trail in Yosemite. Yes. Contact yes. me. Do you think I should do it now, or do you think I should wait till Monday, or what's the harm? Yeah, uh, I I feel like it's a weekend thing, but what you're you're saying wait till Monday for more I don't traffic? Know. I don't know. Is Monday a big social media traffic day? I mean, it's all a big social media traffic day, but yeah. uh, 
I don't know. You're right. It, it kind of feels like a Friday news dump if you do it now. So uh, let let's hold it in the holster. But uh, maybe this weekend or maybe Monday. That's kind of what I'm good. worried about. Yeah. Is I think if I um, if I tweet it now, it has the potential to get lost in the Friday yeah. evening. You know. I think Monday is smart for it. It in the. Uh, You're not competing with much. And by the way, it's a weird thing to look at someone else's photos. I feel yeah. like the people who work at the photo mat or back in the day. I, I've I've talked to people who've worked at like the Costco photo thing and they're like, dude, we have a whole binder <laughs> of photos of people's weird stuff. But they were very tame. It was just it was like they're having a nice time and they lost their GoPro. Yeah, that's great. All right. Leave it here. You get the BFT statewide.